difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. For our next two episodes, we'll be discussing two takes on the same classic novel released 25 years apart, Jillian Armstrong's 1994 version of Little Women and Greta Gerwig's take on the same. I'm here with... Taj Robinson. And Genevieve Kosky. Um, I thought Scott was joining us. Do you know where he is? Oh, Scott heard the Hummels were sick again. Yeah, he said it'd be along shortly. <laughs> <sighs> Hey, am I late? Uh, <laughs> uh, Scott, are you okay? I think so. I was taking bread and medicine to the Hummels, and when I opened the door, this is that, that baby, this baby's hot and <laughs> crying, and uh, I was enveloped by this this cloud of sickness. I, th- I got a little lightheaded on the way home, and now... Oh, <sighs> boy, he's burning up. Uh, Kate, Keith, fetch a pail of ice and some of Father's brandy. I will. Genevieve, in the meantime, can you tell us about our current pairing... We're going to do an episode with Scott like this? Uh, Scott would want it that way. Fortunately, Scott's chances of succumbing to scarlet fever in 2020 are pretty slim, but that wasn't the case in Civil War era Massachusetts, a fact that gave Louisa May Alcott's Little Women, published in 1868 and 1869, one of its most wrenching elements. It's no less wrenching in either of the films we're looking at in our next episodes. Gillian Armstrong's 1994 adaptation and a new version written and directed by Greta Gerwig, both starring of their moment casts as the four March sisters. This week, we'll look at Armstrong's version, starring Winona Ryder, Claire Danes, Kirsten Dunst, Christian Bale, Samantha Mathis, Trini Alvarado, and Susan Sarandon, and shot on a relatively modest studio budget far away from the book's Concord setting in Vancouver. Then we'll follow that up with a discussion of Gerwig's new take. At least I think we'll all be discussing it. Scott, how are you doing? I don't know, but Genevieve, your, your hair. You sold your hair. You're one <laughs> true beauty. Oh, my God. Anyway, Rude. If, God wants, if God wants me with him. There's none who will stop him. Otherwise, I'll be there. (laughs) Telegram. Your father's been wanted. (gasps) Through times of hardship. (laughs) And times of joy. As a loyal and very humble servant of the club. Four sisters followed their dreams. Joe, you have so many extraordinary gifts. How can you expect to lead an ordinary life? You should be writing from, from the depths of your soul. Found their love. Why must we marry at all? Why can't things just stay as they are? I have loved you since the moment I clapped eyes on you. Daddy, please don't ask me shared their tears i love being home but i don't like being left behind now i'm the one going ahead from girls to women didn't i say i would kiss you before you die surprise in the first half of the 20th century it was hard to avoid seeing some version of little women even if you didn't read the book It played on the stage in New York, London, and elsewhere, and served as a basis for two silent films. In 1933, George Cukor made a version starring Catherine Hepburn and Joan Bennett. Sixteen years later, Mervyn Leroy released another starring June Allison, Elizabeth Taylor, and Janet Leigh. 
It looked like there would be a new version of Little Women for each succeeding generation. Then there wasn't. Though the novel remained a favorite for young readers, some combination of changing taste or a changing marketplace brought an end to the habit of remaking Little Women. Or maybe it was just timidity and sexism. In a recent New York Times oral history of the film, director Gillian Armstrong, producer Denise DeNovi, Sony executive Amy Pascal, and screenwriter Robin Swicord discussed the issues they had getting the movie made, then getting it pushed by a studio timid about a film with such a strong focus on female characters. At the time, it was almost impossible to get female-driven films made, DeNovi recalls. They called them needle-in-the-eye movies, where a guy would say to his wife, I'd rather have a needle in the eye than go to that movie. And this one had little and women in the title, Freaking Deadly, end quote. Produced on a small budget with limited expectations, it nonetheless became a hit in the winter of 1994, and a much-revisited classic in the years that followed. That says a lot about the apprehension surrounding movies with primarily female casts, and the way each successful one tends to be treated as a fluke, then and now. And it says something about the enduring appeal of Alcott's depiction of the hopes, dreams, and setbacks of a group of wildly contrasting, sometimes fractious, but unfailingly good-hearted and loving sisters. It also speaks to how much Armstrong and her cast get right. Armstrong's Little Women doesn't make wild innovations with the style of handsome, well-mounted literary adaptations in vogue at the time. It's lighter and looser limb than, say, a Merchant Ivory film, but it similarly relies on streamlining a dense novel and filling the screen with rich period production design. It also allows plenty of breathing room for the cast to bring the novel's characters to life. Fresh off Reality Bites, writer plays aspiring writer Joe as a 19th century woman with a Gen X informed sensibility, skeptical of the established order, quick to dismiss those who disagree with her, but with a romantic longing she can't quite hide. She was then the most familiar face of the cast's younger members, but it was Claire Danes, then known only to fans of the short-lived TV series My So-Called Life, that disarmed audiences with her open-hearted depiction of the doomed Beth. But taken as a whole, the film around her was even more disarming. Armstrong stays true to the spirit of Alcott's novel and trusts its story to work as well for 90s viewers as it had on the page for over 100 years, thanks to vivid characters that reflect it, viewers' own youthful yearnings back to them. And for all its warmth and pretty costumes, it's also a film filled with restlessness and rebellion against the expectations of society in general and the roles women could play in particular. And it was all there just waiting to be made into a movie again after all those years by the right director with the right cast at the right time even though they all had to fight to make others see that, in the process proving Little Women timeless in more ways than one. <clears throat> Gentlemen, <clears throat> I propose the admission of a new member to our theatrical society. Theodore Lawrence will put it to a vote. Nay, he'll laugh at our acting and poke fun at us later. He'll think it's only a game. He won't, upon my word, as a gentleman. Joan, it's only ladies. We don't guard our conduct in the same way. We bare our souls and tell the most appalling secrets. He would find us improper. Oh, Teddy would do nothing of the sort. Oh, please. Let's try him, shall we? Fellow <laughs> artists, may I present myself as an actor, a musician, and a loyal and very humble servant of the club. We'll be the judge of that. In token of my gratitude, and as a means of promoting communication between adjoining nations, shouting from windows being forbidden, I shall provide a post office in our hedge to further encourage the bearing of our souls and the telling of our most appalling secrets. 
All right, so discussion. Genevieve, have you seen this film before? <laughs> uh, yes, I, I was definitely banging the drum to do the 94 Little Women specifically, because as you noted, there are many options we could have chosen uh, from, but this movie specifically is just like, it's a warm blanket movie for mm-hmm. me. I don't even know how many times I watched this as a kid. I, I, I remember we had the actual VHS copy with the printed cover and like we were a tape things off TV household, you know, like all mm. of our all of our VHS had like the handwritten labels and all had pauses for commercial breaks. So like the fact that we actually owned the official VHS of this movie was an indicator of how often it was watched during my childhood. Like I was eleven when it came out and it was a pretty repeated viewing for me throughout my adolescence and and into my teen years. It's like, it's such a a Saturday afternoon winter movie in my mind. Like that's the associations I have with it. So I know it very well. I probably could have done this podcast without rewatching it, uh, (laughs) but but I did uh, for the first time in probably at least 10 years. You know, and it's the same movie I loved and I, I still love it. It's interesting to go back to it in the context of Gerwig's film, which is very different and highlights how traditional the 94 version is in a lot of ways. But, you know, as kind of you laid out in your keynote, Keith, there are elements of it that do feel remarkable in 94 and to a certain extent today as well. But it's a comfort movie for me. It still is. So I'm, I'm curious if anyone has even remotely uh, such strong a connection to this film. I think not, but I'd, I'd like to hear otherwise. <laughs> I'm, I'm a fan, though. I, I saw this in 94 when it first came out. I hadn't seen it since then. But I remember part of what made it so unexpected was it, it was a classic adaptation of mm-hmm. this book. It, it didn't really try to modernize it. And that was not necessarily something you would encounter all that often at the theater. I mean, Were you familiar with the book? I wasn't. I, yeah. I still haven't read the book. I should at yeah. some point. I, yeah, I, I kind of wanted to uh, read it again before doing this because I haven't read it since I was a kid. I can't remember if I read the book first or the movie came first, but I definitely mm. was young. You know, it was one of the first kind of big hardcover chapter books I remember remember reading, you know. So um, yeah, a lot, lot of nostalgic uh, connections for me with this movie, which is, it feels like it's appropriate. It's a very nostalgic movie in a lot of ways. I see it so much in the context of the time. I, I mean, I saw it when it came out and I hadn't seen it until this, uh, again, until this podcast. And so, and so I'm almost seeing it in two different contexts. One in the context of that time, which, which is actually a time where perhaps this type of movie wasn't being made through a studio, but was being made a lot in art houses. This was a time when Merchant Ivory films and Jane Austen adaptations and, you know, Scorsese had done The Age of Innocence the year before and kicked ass with it with Winona Ryder. And so my feeling about the film at the time was like, this is solid, but I didn't find it transcendent in a way that I did, say, Remains of the Day or Age of Innocence or like the really upper echelon films of that period. And the other context I had for it was like I went into it as a huge Gillian Armstrong fan. Um, I had seen her collaborations with Judy Davis, High Tide being really a key one. And then uh, she had just done a film called The Last Days of Shea New, which nobody saw, but I love. I, I really saw, liked. Saw it in the theater. It's a good movie. Good, good movie, yeah. yeah. So it was interesting to see her make this leap into you know a studio film, but I also felt like something was a little bit lost. Like there was, there's a safeness to this movie. We'll get into it more when we talk about the Gerwig version, but the Gerwig version almost revealed to me the film's weakness, which is like it what is it doing? Like, what is its point of emphasis? It's its point of engagement with the book. Because with the Gerwig, it's like, whoa, it really hits mm-hmm. you hard with that. And again, we'll talk about it when we get there. But that's the thing that's sort of missing for me with the Armstrong version is just like, this is a very well done version of this material. But 
why? Well, it's also, as you say, it's, it doesn't have a point of view. I think the, the point right. of view, and I don't mean uh, in terms of the characters, I mean in terms of the actual like writer of the film, the point of view of the Gerwig version is so much about uh, shaping the narrative through the the eyes of a writer and like what her experiences and her thoughts are. Whereas this version to me is just kind of, it's, I think maybe one of the reasons you engaged with it the way you did, Genevieve, is because it's a hangout movie. You mm-hmm. know, it's a There's bunch no of antagonist incident. in yeah. this movie. <laughs> it's, well, it's a poverty. Grand right, poverty. Right, right. Society is the antagonist. Sometimes, uh, sometimes winter. Yeah, <laughs> I saw it when it first came out, and that was that was my main impression of it. Was just sort of a well, it doesn't feel like a ton happens in this movie. It's a hangout movie with people I don't really care one way or the other about hanging out with, and I feel like a lot of my I, I I've been dreading this conversation a little mm-hmm. bit just because people are so excited about the new one, and many many people uh, that I've talked to have such an emotional engagement with the old one. And this is just a story that I've never found any exciting point of emotional engagement with. To me, it it feels like kind of a, an American version of Pride and Prejudice with a lot of the energy taken out of it, a lot of the playfulness taken out of it. You know, you've got the big family full of daughters and they're worried about grinding poverty and there's a huge question of how each of them is going to marry and what it's going to do for the family fortunes. You've got a kind of disengaged father who's out of the picture and a very engaged mother who's extremely central. You've got the romantic interest who part of what he does is uh, show up to be really disapproving at parties. (laughs) They're very, very concerned about the balls and who goes to what and what they wear. There's the sort of uh, penniless guy that comes along and wants to marry into the family and is... uh, kind of a jerk, kind of a a not beloved by the story jerk. I just, there's so many elements in common, but like Pride and Prejudice to me was just a much more like engaging and and forward moving story than this. I mean, I I think the resemblances are ultimately pretty superficial because I think this is so much an an American story. These are characters who have different, definitely different social expectations. Well, they certainly have a different relationship to class. I mean, Pride and Prejudice is such a story about class and there are small elements of class here. There's definitely concern about marrying up versus marrying down and about money. But and (laughs) even to the point of people keep saying things like, well, he has 40,000 a year, mm-hmm. which is something everybody in Jane Austen has to say at least three times sure, a Sure, but I think there's possibilities here. Like, you know, you in America, you could chuck it all and go to New York in a way that that, that someone of their background, which has drifted downward in, uh, to the lower reaches of the middle class, you know, only have one servant. I mean, come on. <laughs> um, you know, it, it is, uh, you know, the, the, you don't see that kind of mobility. I think it is part of what sets it apart from an English story, specifically sure. an Austin story. I mean, you could also point at a lot of, of major things. Like certainly Marmy is a mother far more like engaged <laughs> and present and loving uh, than the mother in Pride and Prejudice. But at the same time, I mean, you yes, you can point to many, many different elements. But then when you just start looking like character by character like you even have the crusty old dowager aunt who everybody kind of hates yeah uh, but, but who has a lot of money and a ton of influence and opinion about who sh- everyone should marry sure but austin stories aren't stories of self-discovery which mm-hmm. this ultimately mm-hmm. is I, you yeah. don't have that element of american transcendentalism which gets called out you know specifically i'm i'm assuming in the book and, and specifically in yes. this adaptation of it as well you know i think that makes it a, a fundamentally different story i mean it's also 
in a way that Pride and Prejudice is not. It's a coming of age story. And I think that is probably why I connected to it more than it being a hangout movie. Like it exists in this space that I am very drawn to in storytelling of the end of childhood and the beginning of adulthood. You know, it's right there in the title, Little Women, you know, like it's what the story is. And that became clearer to me on this viewing and watching the story presented chronologically after having watched it, spoiler alert, in the new one told non-chronologically. And that is the big innovation of Gerwig's film. So going back to watch this more traditional adaptation that does start when Amy is 12 and ends, I think, probably about 10 years down the line, eight or 10 years. I forget the exact timeline, but it just allows for the types of emotional beats that really get at me in stories, you know, particularly in the Joe and Lori relationship, like the sort of struggle to evolve that childlike brother-sister relationship into an adult relationship and ultimately a failure to do so and how it is sort of transferred onto Amy. I think like just from a narrative perspective, the Joe, Lori, Amy thing is probably like the real meat of the story as far as like what's actually interesting about it, at least to me. Like obviously Beth dying is a big emotional moment that makes people cry and Beth getting her piano makes people cry, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, including Claire Danes and everyone on set apparently. (laughs) Um, But the kind of triad of those three characters and the way that their relationships differ and evolve over the course of the story I think is what makes it not unique, but well, I I, I guess, yeah, unique at, at the time. I don't think there were any stories, at, at least in American literature, that were telling anything close to that kind of story. And it's different than something like Pride and Prejudice, to my mind, which is there's still like male-female romantic relationships at play, but it's less about the self-discovery element and the sort of realigning of your relationships as you go into adulthood than Little Women is. There's an emphasis here on warmth and on generosity and charity and things like that. It's a, a Christmas movie, too. Like, like yeah. I, I, I kind of forgot that when we were planning this, and yeah. I, I don't know about you guys, but I watched both of these movies over, <laughs> over the holidays. And uh-huh. It's like, oh, yeah, like this is a really solid Christmas movie in a, in a lot of ways without being specifically about Christmas. I, I keep getting Vulture re-ran my best Christmas movies, and I keep getting, you forgot to include this, and, and like, no one, no one's called this out, but I was, I was when I was watching, it's like, oh yeah, I should have included this. <laughs> it's, it's a really good Christmas movie. Yeah, we should talk about the performances too. To me, I think Dane's then and now is a standout. Like I never really paid that much attention to my so-called life at the time, and then and then I saw this. Like who who is this person? Like the piano scene is just. I mean, the reaction on her face, you rarely see that just that raw and perfectly pitched emotion on, on an actress that that young, you know. But I mean, I think everyone does this is really good. It, it arrived at a point where Winona Ryder, I think, was a big star, but was trying to figure out what kind of star she mm-hmm. was. I think it's somewhat interesting that it came out the same year as Reality Bites and on the heels of Bram Stoker's Dracula and Age of Innocence. It's like, is she going to be a, a 90s person or a 19th century person? <laughs> um, I think her she comes off as fairly modern in this, but in a way that serves the story because she is someone who is ahead of her time and her sensibility. Yeah, she's a useful access point for the audience, I think. So many of the characters here are just these like very warm, comforting presences, but uh, she's simultaneously warm and comforting and just kind of perpetually pushing the story forward in a uh, like a, a more modern way, a more modern uh, energy, a more modern pacing, it seems. 
Which is right for the character of Joe. Like, I mean, that character has the most modern sensibility of the four sisters and really of, of any characters other than, I don't know. No, of all, of all the four characters. I was going to say maybe Laurie, but Laurie is very traditionalist in some ways, too, um, especially as he gets older. But I mean, yeah, I think this may have been the first movie I, I saw Ryder in, because as I said, I was 11 when it came out, and I don't, I don't think I had seen Reality Bites at that point. I don't know, it's it's hard to, to know the exact timeline, but like this is the film I associated her with most strongly until like I saw Heathers, which is something like <laughs> a, a very different type of, of Ryder performance, you know, but still kind of draws on she does have sort of a innate childlike nature to her the big eyes the big features like she can kind of pull off that again like i was talking about that space between childhood and adulthood both physically and and in her performance like joe can be a real pill sometimes you know she can be real pouty but she's always trying to balance those tendencies and again this is something the new film gets into a lot more explicitly but she's trying to like balance those tendencies with this family uh, mandate to, you know, be good, to embrace goodness, you know, and there's several moments of Joe being like, I wish I could be good like Marmy or, or good like she's expected to be. And I think just that sort of not discomfort with who she is, but just sort of a restlessness just comes out in a lot of writers' performances, but it, it works really well here. To me, the action of the story isn't really the Joe, Lori, Amy thing. I find that whole thing still in both versions just a little strange. I'm, I think that they treat it very differently. But in both cases, I'm still not entirely sure whether Lori does like truly transfer all of his affections over to Amy or he is just kind of wanting wanting his way into the family. To me, the action of the film is is what you're describing is Joe's conflict between wanting nothing to change, wanting everything to remain exactly the same as it is for everyone but her. Like she wants to write and be known and be recognized and create all of these wonderful worlds that they can all live in mentally. But she doesn't want anybody to move forward because it threatens her relationship with all these people she loves. And her struggle to, as she puts it, be good and her struggles to accept what her sisters want and be happy for them versus her struggle to kind of like please herself and hold on to everything and keep everything close, I think is the most interesting dynamic in the movie. And I, I think Ryder plays that really well. This is going off topic a little bit, but something we've kind of talked about to an extent as well, like um, just the style of the movie and the fact that it is, it's a cozy movie in a lot of ways, but just on a, from a production standpoint, it's a very cozy movie. And I think that's really important to help understand that element of Joe's character. Like this space, this orchard house little bubble that they're all in is the happiest days of her life, even though you know, there's little tragedies within that bubble. So as you say, like kind of the, you know, the tension of the story of the movie is her like not wanting to leave that feeling behind. And so I think the fact that the first half of the movie especially is just so intent on making you feel that warmth and that genial love, you know, is how you get that out of Joe's character. It's maybe a little too cozy for me. I, I <laughs> This movie feels very set bound in a lot of ways to me. And uh, never more so than when they go out and play in the very, very fake snow. Hmm. Yeah. And the like the ice skating sequence, uh, which the Gerwig version makes pretty visceral and terrifying. Like here, it just, it feels like the whole film is kind of taking place on the set of uh, Emma Dodder's Jug Band Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was apparently filmed like in the spring. It was like in the <laughs> 70s when it happened. Like, according to that, or, or was it the oral history? Yeah, oral history. And they talked about 
about the the ice skating sequence is actually doesn't involve no ice whatsoever. I, that's uh, not yeah. remotely surprising. To yeah, me, yeah. And, and and Amy actually falls. Uh, Kirsten Dunst actually falls into a hot tub. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so movie magic. Mo- movie magic. Yeah. I thought it was perfectly. I thought it had a perfectly wintry quality to it. I, I bought. Yeah, no, I bought the look. It's, I bought the look of I it. I don't know. I, I there's a part of me in the back of my head the whole time was thinking, well, you know, they just want to marry well and get off this movie set. They just no. they want to be able to go further than like. I didn't think it Four was, feet away I didn't from think home. it was that, that set bound. Though I'm always I'm always caught up by the Deus ex machina element of that ice thing. I'm just I'm just of needing that because uh, that beat comes right after burning yeah. that burning the book, and it's like you, you almost want a little bit of distance between that incident and then just the redemption thing coming immediately afterwards. Yeah, no, Gerwig uh, definitely puts more space in there and makes it feel like more like something that was properly stretched out because I think oh, I, I feel, I, I no, feel they're, both, I, they're both they're both real it, it tight it happens they're literally they're the next stop day talking about the Gerwig version I know, we, yeah. I know but we're, we're, we're gonna have a ton of stuff to talk it's about it's almost like the two films are more interesting in conversation with each other yeah, yeah. I will say I, I 100% believe that because like I didn't love the Gerwig version I didn't love rewatching this looking at the two of them together makes me want to see other versions of the movie makes mm-hmm. me want to read the book there's so many very small interpretive choices made between these two movies i i think they become like a fascinating just example of how much you can do as a director as a writer as an actor with exactly the same material well and there are specific moments that like you have to have in a little women movie and when they're not there or any little women telling. And when they're not there, it just like, it feels wrong, at least to me, you know, like Amy falling through the ice is part of that. And I, I think the compression you're feeling is a result of just a kind of a, a need to get through these little vignettes. You know, it's a, it's a very sort of incident based story, especially in the first half. Like you see, you know, there's the burning of the manuscript, there's Amy and her limes, there's Beth getting her piano. There's the, so many limes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do love the I've quoted the limes a lot in, in our <laughs> discussions about this film but I do I do love the limes I thing. don't fully understand the limes so I don't understand like yeah. is it like sort of sort of currency at school pickled limes yeah yeah or? they're they're pickled limes which I don't really I, I'm mm. assuming it's some sort of candy sure. some sort of antiquated candy I, I still don't know what pickled limes are but I, I, I it seems like a very unlikely thing for young school girls to become obsessed with but during the Civil War, maybe not so much Snickers when they're. <laughs> I mean, like it, it's it's a very helpful illustration of what uh, small joys were in in this era. You know, you know. Well, sure, I, 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 mean, I have an answer like to any this. Sort of citrus. Huh. Actually, from the internet here, kids chewed, sucked, and traded pickled limes at school and not just at recess for decades, making the limes the perennial bane of New England school teachers. Doctors thought it was an unnatural habit, but parents didn't seem to be bothered and were content to let their children indulge. This is from an answer, sort of a little women answer form. That, that really doesn't answer the question of what, what they taste tasted like, like yeah. or why I, I, kids would be. I mean, it reminds me, like, well, in, in like when I was in elementary Pickled school, limes, kids, uh, it was all about warheads, like super sour candy. You know, okay. like that was that, that was like the currency. So pick, our pickled limes were just the warheads of we the day. Lime, we had limes, <laughs> avocado, and cilantro. Like we were like trading. You were trade, just making go, table desk sides guacamole. Exactly. <laughs> well, no wonder the teachers this objected early, to this that. Is, this is an early version of, of schoolyard uh, guacamole. No, no wonder poor Annie, poor Amy gets her hands smacked if she was making table side guac for everybody. <laughs> okay. did, did she also have a fryer in the corner where she was making her own tortilla chips? Because that that stuff will really disrupt your school learning. Okay, can I say that I like Susan Sarandon? <laughs> oh, I was actually about to say she's one of like the 
few parts I don't really oh, love. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I I, I, is it too much? Is it too much, the motherliness? I, I, Let me, uh. Yeah, I don't. And again, I'm sorry, Keith, but I, I am going to have to invoke the new <laughs> movie. Fine, fine, you, fine. Know, you know, just because I never had a problem with it until rewatching it after She's the... much less of a... The character is much less of a uh, of, of a presence in, in this movie. And, and, yeah. 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 And she's just... It's a lot flatter. And like Marmy is a interesting character to adapt within a story that is not really about her. And the new movie makes some efforts to, I think, help us understand Marmy a little more. Whereas here, I think you just get Marmy as the saint, you, you know, mm. and the, the guiding hand. And there's not a complexity there. No. Um, so that is maybe more about the writing than right. Sarandon's yeah, exa- performance. Exactly. But I, I feel like I could expect Sarandon to maybe bring a little edge to Marmy that I don't feel she brings here. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, I think, but I think she kind of sort of embodies the spirit of the of the film and what it's trying to do in terms of those themes of family and of warmth and of charity and these things. Like that's that's kind of her. Yeah. Like that, she's a, at the center of that, and it's this kind of like it's maybe a one dimensional thing, but she's kind of like the guiding light. I do like when family. she pulls Amy out of school. That's a that's yeah, a that's I think a, that's that's a that's, that's, that's a big Marmy moment, and I think Sarandon's good. Yeah, in there, no, that, that's good. I'm kind of weirded out by Claire Danes in this film. I, I guess everyone thinks she's great, but no, that, no, I like her. Yeah. That, 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 I'm indifferent. That crying, that crying I'm indifferent not, to her. Is it just does not do it for me at the all? Reasons, reasons affect it to you, or, or? it just looks it just it's just a very strange cry. Well, I mean, <laughs> this, this she's is the thing about Claire like, Danes. Yeah, yeah, Claire Danes is Claire Danes' ugly crier has been just like a, it's a, a label it's a on okay, her yeah, forever. It's, yeah. it's 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 a little it was a little much for me, but again, it's a, it's a, definitely your mileage may vary on that. I think what has made Claire Danes cry face like kind of like I said a meme is like it's not a pretty movie cry it's a Mm. weird ugly cry Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I I think that's why I like it here like the way she just like kind of chokes out that sob and her chin gets all wrinkly like it's not a cinematic cry yeah that's true someone being overwhelmed yeah it's just too real for you scott (laughs) it is it is it it takes me out i I just i just see see a lot of acting there when i when Mm. i watch that particular takes me out of the movie but you know speaking of taking me out of the movie the amy thing with uh i it's very hard to that transition from dunst to to to, uh it's a big leap especially given that nobody else really changes all that much visually i mean christian bale like adopts his uh his tiny little mustache and (laughs) which very quickly becomes just a tiny little mustache. Mm -hmm. And I think he does some fairly impressive work in going from like a young puppyish kind of like loose limbed sloppy lad to a very like self-contained like wearing a suit a kind of ramrod straight uh, businessman over the course of the film. But uh, most people don't make that much of a transition that would make the leap from young Amy to to older Amy logical. And it makes the whole thing a little weird because we see her as a child and then we see her as an adult and suddenly he's interested in her. It's like... For the rest of us, it was like five minutes ago that she was very visibly twelve, and you were about the same age you are <laughs> yeah, now. Yeah, it's got kind of a they keep getting they keep getting younger, and I keep staying the same kind of vibe to it. Well, I, I can I think that vibe would have been a lot worse if they hadn't aged up the, <laughs> the, the, the character there. So. That's very yeah. very. So, true. I, I think if, if I were making an excuse for it, which I'm not really because I don't really care one way or the other. I, I think about the, the casting, but if I were to give an explanation of it, I think it's in that moment we're supposed to be in the shoes of Lori 
seeing her as an adult for the first time after seeing her as a child only before that. I think that's some very not 19th century kissing going on there too. It was sort of a nod, sort of a nod to contemporary audience expectations about about how much physical affection people and unmarried characters would show each other. Yeah, in, just in like these, making out in, in the circles. park. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, Paris though. That's true. That rules are different. Well, but, well, uh, okay, so speaking of uh, like hardcore modern making out, what what oh, is? Oh, I like to, like, like to talk about that. I, yeah. not, where, not where I thought little our little women conversation would go, but okay. I just don't understand the story. Being of Joe coming in and finding Lori and Meg making out just after we find out about Meg's engagement to... Oh, you mean Mr. Brooks and, and Meg. Is it Mr. Brooks? I, I kept going oh, yeah. back and forth and back no. and forth and looking no, at the oh, no. Yeah, no, Meg, the Meg, Meg, does not, Meg does not kiss Lori. Okay, well, that, that makes <laughs> so more sense. There, then. I explained the story because it didn't happen. Well, then maybe we all, maybe we, all, uh, we need to, to just cut that. Yeah. I just, I spent so much time going back and forth between them because I was like... It's definitely Meg because she's wearing the same dress. It, it looks exactly Mr. like yeah. Lori's hair. Yeah. And Mr. Brooks has like like reddish he's, hair. Yeah, yeah. He's Eric Stoltz. Um, <laughs> well, you don't see his face because they're they're yeah. they're doing that I mean, sideways. It's, it's a long, it's a long shot. Faces I, like it's a long shot. And the four of them had been together that night. So like, I, it's it's a mistake. I, I understand making, but I am confident. That is not what was happening okay. there. Well, you need to stop uh, watching us on your iPod Touch. <laughs> um, I, I watched. Uh, I watched it all on my, on my phone while doing something else and I, with my other hand. I, I when it, it was kind of fun seeing Kirsten Dunst here too because I when we were we were talking about pairings for this I think we were always going to go with Little Women Little Women but I always thought the Virgin Suicides was going to be mm-hmm. was gonna be kind of a nice <laughs> pairing of these sisters sort of trapped in this. You know, very creative, but sort of trapped in this uh, attic. And we'll find another reason to do uh, virgin suicides. Probably so. And all of them just like very, very closely aligned with each other mentally and emotionally mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't really allow in the outside world. I, I think one of the most interesting sequences in any uh, adaptation of Little Women is the one where Joe reveals that she's already admitted Laurie to their mm-hmm. pretended to be a man uh, games and... The whole pretense of, well, let's discuss it and vote, uh, she's profoundly uncomfortable with because they do actually want to discuss it and refuse him. And she's like, well, he's kind of already, he's, he's standing here <laughs> yeah. listening to all of this. Yeah. Uh, I, I really enjoy the the let's dress up as in old clothing as men and, and pretend to act like we believe gentlemen act among themselves. So a lot of like sucking on corncob pipes and going rum, rum, rum and trying to be very important. <laughs> I, I really dig that whole sequence, and I absolutely understand why they're all like, no, no, we don't want an actual boy here. It's going to change everything. Like, we've got this little circle of girls that can talk to each other and, and be free among themselves, and you want to mess with that. It's maybe the one place where Joe does want to move everything forward, and everybody else is resisting and saying, no, change is bad. So the 1933 version appeared in the Great Depression and kind of spoke to some viewers you know, about living under straightened circumstances. You know, Is there anything about this that worked particularly for the 90s that makes this a, a 90s adaptation of Little Women? I mean, I think Scott hit the nail on the head in bringing up Merchant Ivory. That was something I was going to bring in as well, just because, I mean, for me, one of maybe one of the big reasons that I didn't care for this movie when it came out is that it was two years after Howard's End, which is one of my favorite costume dramas of all time. 
And this felt like it was hitting sort of some of the same beats of the, like the importance of charity and the, our relationship to the poor and like, who do we marry and how and what does it mean? And like, can we hang on to things that used to be part of our family and now we've fallen? Um, just a, a lot of very, very different things again, but a lot of similar elements. And it just felt so much more vivid and real than this. But it did come in the, just a huge wave of these like Merchant Ivory and Merchant Ivory related mm-hmm. uh, costume dramas. This feels like in some way the birth of the modern prestige drama, the, the sort of studio loss leader that everybody knows is not going to make a lot of money, but is meant for awards and respectability and is meant to have like a certain grandeur and a certain respectability, both in terms of who's in it and where it came from and, and what it's saying. That's sort of what this feels like to me. Yeah. I mean, the other issue is just is, again, like the bar was so high. I mean, there were like a lot of film. not only were a lot of films of its kind coming out, but they're all pretty good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you mentioned Howard Zen remains of the day. Those are that was peak Merchant Ivory. Sense of Sensibility would come the year after, you know, Age of Innocence comes the year before. I mean, these are really very, very strong films and common. I mean, if you wanted to see, you know, a well done, <laughs> you know, thoughtful literary adaptation, you know, they're there for you in a way that they're not anymore or not as much anymore. It's a film with four central characters. I mean, Joe obviously is the center of it all, but I mean, everyone gets their plot. Does this version of the, of the story, does it, does it treat all the characters with equal sympathy? Does everyone get their due, the good, you know, their, to have their stories fully developed? I mean, it centers Joe and I mean, Joe is a Louisa May Alcott stand and it's a mm-hmm. it's a fairly autobiographical novel. Like it makes sense that Joe is the most central character. But something I noticed on this viewing is that Joe is given voiceover in this film and the book is not written in Joe's voice. It's a, it's a third person narrator. So on the one hand, that kind of highlights it as a or it highlights a connection between Joe and Louise May Alcott, which again we also see in the in the Gerwig version done in a different way. Uh, but it, it definitely foregrounds the the connection there in a way that is done in a way differently than it is in the book. So it makes Joe the point of view character. And I don't necessarily think it's at the expense of the other sisters. But, you know, most of the incidents we do see are ones that have a direct bearing on Joe's storyline in some way or or another, you know, like, like Amy and the Limes ends up mattering to Joe because she has to uh, take on Amy or she has to start tutoring Amy, you know, or um, Meg going to the debutante. Well, that's more of a of a Lori uh, that that affects Lori, I think, more than Joe. But but anyway, it uh, it centers Joe in a way that is maybe not completely accurate to the source material, but also feels right given that Joe is the Louise May Alcott stand-in. What the heck is up with Lori at the debutante ball? What I am like, that's something that is a little hard to stomach. Like even in the nineties that Mm -hmm. played oddly with the whole, you know, I can, I can see an entire inch of your neck. You slattern. What are you doing? Going about showing off such skin and like be yourself. At least he apologizes. Yeah. Yeah. Also much like with the Amy thing, he apologizes uh, too soon. Uh, and you you don't really get a chance to live with that emotion at all. But apart from that sequence, to me, it feels like Meg is the one that doesn't really get her due in this in this movie. She feels like a very vanilla presence compared to everybody else who gets gets just sort of more energy and more spotlight. Mm-hmm. And her big spotlight is being 
adopted by these other girls you never see before or or after very very briefly basically just enough so that she can be shamed by lori who later makes a point of like he just wants to be a part of the family it mm-hmm. feels like he would marry anybody and he he as much as says that he'll marry anybody yeah. to get into the family which i feel is very honest and very interesting and honestly very believable given what his family circumstances are like but in that one scene he just kind of shuts Meg out of that calculation uh, by treating her with very pride and prejudice, disdain and judgment. And apart from that, we, we see very little of her alone with anybody else, like very little of her alone with, you know, the man that she comes to marry, mm-hmm. for instance, or with her mother or with any of the sisters. This just feels like very not Meg's story to me. Yeah, I mean, I think it could be argued that Meg is just kind of the most boring character <laughs> in the story. But uh, to your point about the scene at the ball with Laurie, I think, again, if I were to defend Laurie, which I don't really want to because he is a, a jerk in that moment, and I think we are supposed to see him as being a jerk in that moment. But his judgment of her is coming in the context of what would your family say? You know your family would not approve of this. You're drinking. Temperance is a big thing in this movie. Not a big thing, but it comes up uh, repeatedly that they don't drink. So I think in the context of Lori idolizing the March family and seeking a family that he does not have in the March family, that judgment is coming from a place of feeling like he's a stand-in for the family's judgment of her, which is crappy, but he's also like 17. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's an important part of it. I agree with you. I just, I feel like this movie is a little at war with itself. And and this is kind of baked into the source material as well. Just a little at war with itself in the struggle between like a dynamic story about women who are discovering themselves and who are pushing the boundaries, who are recognizing the limitations that have been put on them and want to fight them. And this just very treacly Hallmark movie about, you know, a gingerbread house surrounded by fake snow and this sort of like warm sisterly feeling. And to me, Beth belongs very, very heavily on the sentimental side. Like her entire story arc is about how good and kind and wonderful she is and therefore how tragic and and awful it is when her kindness is what causes us to lose her. If she didn't die, Beth would be the most boring character. But because she dies, she's more interesting than Meg. (laughs) I don't know. She's, uh, She's still pretty boring. But there are just, there are aspects of this movie that just seem so so lively and like ahead of their time for the 1800s, maybe ahead of their time for the 1990s. And then there's just like the very syrupy hallmarky, which by the way, the score, I would put that on no, there as well. No, you're wrong. Yeah. I like oh. Thomas Newman's <laughs> oh, oh, it's so much. No. It just, it feels yeah. like fondant frosting on top you know of everything. We, we don't insult Newman on this podcast. Is that the rule? Yeah. I don't, I don't think I remember that rule. You know who does get more space here uh, in a way that I think is really actually pretty interesting is Friedrich Barr. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. He, 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 the reasons that he gets so much more space here than he does in Gerwig's version are very clear and interesting, and we'll talk about yes. that next time. But I actually bought the relationship It here. shouldn't work, and it kind of works. Yeah, the, <laughs> the age difference seems impenetrable. They don't seem to necessarily have a ton in common. And you can just see so clearly how she would find him distant and intriguing and exotic and also just 
way more like her than anybody else around. And that sequence where they're watching the opera Mm -hmm. from the flies is really romantic Mm -hmm. in a really startling way. Yeah. He's like second build, isn't he, Gabriel Byrne? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big, it's a... For someone who doesn't really show up until the third act. No, no. um, I like that performance. I mean, I think with, in terms of the four sisters, I think it's fine and proper that Joe is the central figure of the four i definitely never want to require films to be democratic in that Mm -hmm. sense but i do think there's a responsibility for the other three characters to have their moments you know and i think in this movie it's really still just joe and beth who have their the payoffs that really kick you in the gut and i don't i don't uh, you know that's that's a much different story again we'll talk about with the gerwig where everybody i feel like every single moment in that that's supposed to be emotionally effective is absolutely maximized in a way that it isn't here but that's kind of where i'm at with the sisters i feel like that beth and joe especially are the other characters are really come across and amy's kind of a missed opportunity i think it i think the casting uh, of two different actresses probably plays a little bit of a role in that Maybe the sort of central quality of her is that she grows up enough that she has to change actresses. <laughs> Keith, you, you posed the question, but you haven't really weighed in. What do you think? Uh, you're, you're all just doing just a good job answering the question. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean you're, you're the Beth of this discussion, just encouraging us <laughs> and yeah. mitigating conflict. Uh, yeah, no, I think I think you're right. I, I think I think Meg is sort of the least interesting element of it, and it's not. I mean, the performance is good, and I, I think Eric Stoltz is fun uh, in that role too, but. And apart from the passionate makeout session, you know, you don't really get a sense of there. You don't really get a sense, though, of, of what's bringing these characters together or why uh, she's going to disappoint Joe by leaving behind her acting uh, for, mm-hmm. for life with this man. Yeah. So we keep getting ahead of ourselves and talking about the 2019 Little Women. So why don't we just end this discussion and we'll be talking about the 1994 Little Women some more in our next episode and talking about the Gerwig. I think it will be a good discussion. And for now, we're going to address some feedback after the break. Now it's time for feedback, when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. We're still getting letters about one of 2019's most compellingly puzzling films, Under the Silver Lake. Genevieve, could you share one? Sure. Ben writes, since you recently asked listeners to write in on older episodes and other topics broadly related to film, I wanted to circle back to Under the Silver Lake in one moment that really stuck with me. I'm referring to the scene where Andrew Garfield's Sam encounters a songwriter, a grotesque old man who's supposedly ghostwritten decades of popular songs just to conceal hidden messages within the lyrics for his wealthy patrons. Even the music of Kurt Cobain, an icon of youthful rebellion and Sam's own idol, is revealed to be nothing more than a tool to enrich the old man and serve the secret interests of a few billionaires. The personal meaning that Smells Like Teen Spirit has for Sam is purely incidental. What makes the scene compelling to me is how it plays upon the tension between art and commerce that exists within the popular culture that we consume, films included. Take a movie like Wonder Woman that resonated as a feminist anti-war epic on one hand, but on the other hand was executive produced by former Goldman Sachs partner and current Secretary of the Treasury Steve Mnuchin. Does that film exist more for the young girls who are inspired by it or for the plutocrat who invested in and profited from it? Are the films that feel made for us even for us, or do they principally exist to make rich and powerful old men even richer and more powerful? As critics, how do the crass and often corrupt commercial interests behind the film industry affect your understanding of the films themselves? Should that information factor into criticism, and if so, how? 
Whew, that's a doozy. Uh, Who wants I, to jump I, I in? Love, that's that's uh, that might as this. well be say, like <laughs> so say, excited by Scott Tobias. Whole, what do you think about I, this? I'm excited by this whole thing. I mean, I just he he's keyed into the scene in Under the Silver Lake, um, and maybe my still I think my favorite scene of the year with the songwriter. And I think he's articulated very well what is being implied in that scene and what it means for us as consumers of commercial art. And I think there's kind of a thing where art, when it works, is something that resonates, is supposed to resonate for us in an extremely personal way. But it also is something that you are, uh, in many cases, are sharing with, you know, millions of other people. I mean, it smells like teen spirit, you know, people heard that song, <laughs> you know, that was played everywhere. That was played in frat parties. I mean, you can even Cobain himself, his relationship with that song, you know, became transformed into the, into the song Rape Me from in, in utero. I mean, like, in just like it came into the culture and it got away from him and it became this sort of grotesque thing. And so it's kind of an interesting thing to sort of parse that out about what we take from a work of art that's personal and what's shared with everybody else and whether the sharing uh, diminishes the personal stuff, you know? And, and, uh, and of course it came up again with the whole Marvel Scorsese thing too, in terms of like what in one corner of this theme park material and in this other corner, this hugely personal three and a half hour epic. And it's hard to sort those things out, but it, it does come up often. I think about it all the time. It, it, even if I don't think about it, this specific issue as, as we're addressing it now, it certainly has to play, right? I mean, mm-hmm. as a critic, you, you and, and as a consumer of art, you you have to be thinking about that, right? But you hate extra textuals so much, <laughs> and you object when we bring extra textuals into a film. Yeah, no, but yeah, but but it's but, okay but, when he does. But it. I'm aware. <laughs> but I'm aware that something is being produced for mass consumption, and and I'm a, you know, aware of what of certain effects that are being put in there by filmmakers to appeal to as many people as possible and how that ends up playing for me as an individual viewer who maybe uh, is hoping for something a little bit more personal in in the the filmmaking. I mean, I'm aware of it all the time and I don't object to extra textuals. I find them fascinating and I particularly find them fascinating when you can look at the finances or the backing of a movie where it comes from and see why certain elements are in it. And I think that becomes even more fascinating when it becomes a whole movement, like the ongoing inclusion of Chinese characters and Chinese plot lines in blockbuster films in hopes of getting the movie into the Chinese market which can, you know, double your gross profits. The fact that we have that happening over and over in so many films right now seems like just sort of like a baffling little current unless you're looking at the I mean, money. Yeah, you don't want I mean I would never say suggest to just divorce yourself from the context in which a film is made. I mean that isn't that is not <laughs> what I mean by I mean my my thing is like just don't bring you know if you didn't like an interview with the person like don't bring that into what you think about the movie. Yeah. Well, but in terms of I mean in terms of not liking the movie because you don't like something the the director said, sure, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But I think it's fascinating. I, I think to answer the specific question here, should that, that information factor into criticism and how, I think ultimately, if a movie works, it doesn't really matter as much where it came from. If a movie functions perfectly well on its own without knowing the backstory, then it doesn't really matter. But like a movie like Tarsum's The Fall, which I go on and on about, is so much more fascinating for knowing all the commercial elements that went into it in terms of what he had to do to get it made. Uh, and I think that in the same sort of way, the the ridiculous failure of a movie like Men in Black International becomes more <laughs> interesting when you know all of the elements that went into making that a, a bland vanilla pudding of a movie. Hmm. 
Yeah, I think the other issue raised by the scene and the letter as well is, is, is sort of just, you know, is there ethical art consumption under capitalism? Mm-hmm. Uh, these are products that serve an interest. And it's like, even if it were just kind of phony to begin with, whatever sense that, you know, things that are independent and things that are small and handmade have more integrity to them than things on released by a major label, to use the music example here, uh, that doesn't really uh, apply in 20... I mean, it's not something a lot of people think about it this anymore. I think it was sort of localized to Gen X, and I think in some ways it's a very Gen X movie in that sense. Like, you know, Andrew Garfield's character is not of age, but, I mean, he's kind of like our friend Rick Ramerti, who all his interests are aligned with... Uh, uh, with <laughs> yeah. with uh, with uh, the Gen X uh, sensibility. Oh, I don't think that's true, though. I think millennials are are pretty obsessed with the purity. Like that's so pure is mm. like the biggest compliment you can give to a piece of art these days. And what that means is, you know, it's devoid of uh, visible calculation and visible commercialism. Mm. I don't know. And it's very hard I mean, wh- to get to that Whether you were place. like whether you were indie or major label. It was a defining the 90s was thing. a defining thing when you sure were, it was that, a defining in a way, thing. It definitely isn't now. It was a defining thing for music, particularly the difference between major label and indie music, but and it, in a way that it may not be now. But with cinema and TV, I'm still seeing a lot of gatekeeping in terms of how pure something is, and that pure has a very familiar connotation of avoiding the the crass, obvious commercialism mm-hmm. of art. Now it's funny that that purity test that obsession with purity comes in the same environment where people find the antics of the twitter arby's account and how it interacts with the twitter wendy's account like a viable form of entertainment like the the (laughs) strands between capitalism commerce and in entertainment and art have never been muddier than they are right now but i do think it is an ongoing generational interest all i know is that movie and that scene appeared the same year as uh um neil young did a commercial for amazon music and i don't know what to think about any of it anymore (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, one last again i don't want to stretch this out maybe just be cut but one thing i just i'm stuck on though is like is i think you do have an impulse as a as a as a critic and, and an art appreciator to adopt things you were talking about the, the fall i mean isn't there something kind of special about that film being yours in a way like oh, the, sure and i can feel that a lot of times from certain critics they just find that little pet film that has a, it's probably deeply flawed or you know, dismissed or it was a flop or something, you just, you, you kind of cling to it because it can be yours. You can claim it in a way that you can't claim Avengers Endgame. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but th- when you say that, it sounds like you're talking about the kind of phenomenon where if tomorrow suddenly somebody posted a clip from the fall online and it went viral and suddenly everybody in the world was watching it, I'd be resentful because like I, I knew that film before it was cool. Like I, everybody has ruined my thing by discovering it. And I don't feel that way at all. I I don't think I'd be a critic if I didn't constantly want to push the the things sure. I love into the hands of other people regardless of commercial elements. And maybe more so if it if they aren't commercial and therefore they don't have a giant machine pushing them, you know, The Fall never had the benefit of that. The Nines, another movie that I feel that way about, never had the benefit of a an end game level commercial push. So in that case, like I'm very aware of the the capitalistic lack of of push behind these these projects, and I want to own them as something that I can give to people as a gift, not mm. as something that I can hoard for myself and say <laughs> like, at least I've got this. 
You're very generous. Okay. Well, we also received a letter based on an even older episode. Tasha, can you share that one? Sure. Uh, not to be outdone by Ben, Kyle reached all the way back to 2016 to bring up a topic discussed on our uh, episodes about Assault on Precinct 13 and Green Room. Kyle writes, I just saw Assault on Precinct 13 for the first time and listened to the episodes you all did pairing that with Green Room. So some of this may be moot as I'm not sure what the feedback was on that episode all the way back in 2016. But I'm curious about your discussion of violence and Scott's love for explicit on-screen violence. I consider myself a lover of it as well, but I usually put it in terms of quality over quantity. My major reference points for this are Green Room, Raw, and Drive, movies that use violence sparingly but extremely effectively. This past year, I had to reckon with Coralie Fargeau's Revenge, which gave us both quantity and quality. I'm curious whether any of you have seen it or have seen other movies that give too much very explicit on-screen violence to a point where it becomes less effective or overwhelming, as I think is the intent in Revenge. Well, I've seen Revenge. Uh, In fact, I reviewed it for Variety um, out of TIFF, I believe, and uh, I'm a huge fan of it. There's a quality and quantity of the violence is pretty extreme. You saw this one, too. I saw it, too. Yeah, it's, no, it's, the, it's, the quantity and uh, quality of blood is pretty phenomenal in that movie. Yeah, I mean, it, it is one of those... T- it's, a, it's a type of horror film that we've seen before, usually in a highly exploitative context and sort of an I spit on your grave type of scenario where a woman takes revenge, as the title says, on, after act of violation. But it's done. It's it's from a woman director, which is not what we've seen with Ice Spit in Your Grave or um, forty five or, 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 or yeah or Last House and Last Left or any of that stuff. I really like it and would recommend it. I, I thought it was going to have a bigger impact when it came out than it did, but I guess I guess Kyle has seen it. <laughs> I mean, it's a small movie and it's uh it it got a small release. It's got copious full frontal male nudity which i think in and of itself just kind of makes it uh, a hard sell for some theaters for some distributors and it's got, just copious, kind of, it's got copious everything it's got copious everything but but specifically the blood. things that are unusual mm-hmm. are the I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact phrasing of the old onion uh fill text when they had like a little space they needed filling passers-by were overwhelmed by the something amount of blood by the blood. unusual amounts of yeah. blood something uh, like that because that, yeah. that we saw that all the time uh, repeated hundreds of times it's it it is really entirely over the top in the amount of blood at the end of the movie and mm-hmm. you've got a stark naked man scrabbling around it's imagine the the fight scene in Eastern Promises in the sauna, <laughs> except it goes on for 20 minutes and involves a man like wallowing through about 3,000 gallons of fake blood. Mm. I mean, there's a lot of skin in the film generally. I mean, it, it just it, it's just a very explicit movie, but um, so stylish. Like it's a first time filmmaker and the, the level of like confidence and craft uh, command. It's just, it was exciting. So I found address, it really cartoonish. To address the question at the heart of the letter though, I think okay. it is if we establish that, that a movie doesn't overindulge in violence just by quantity alone, what does it take for you to feel like a, a movie has gone too far with its violence? To some degree, it will, if it's, if it's for shock value, there are certain films that I feel like go too far. Irreversible. Gaspar Noé's Irreversible strikes me as a movie that goes too far okay. into grotesque violence for the sake of violence, uh, for the sake of of sickening the stomach and deadening the soul. Hmm. And in some, to some degree, it's not the rape scene. It's the the scene where a man's head is slowly and, and thoroughly crushed in combat. You mean the, the first scene in the movie? Yes, I mean the first <laughs> scene in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's there's stuff like that. But honestly, I think I, f- I find myself more deadened by the kind of movie. And I, I don't have a good specific example here. Maybe something like Taken, 
where a man just like kills his way through what seems like hundreds of people and none of them really matter all that much mm. explicitly until the end. Just that sense of there are human barriers to where you want to be and the only solution is to just kill as many people as possible. That's where I find violence deadening far more than in something like, say, Brawl in Cellback 99, which also has head crushing, um, <laughs> very, very graphic head crushing and some really, really extreme violence, but used very, very sparingly and used in such a way uh, towards the end that it strikes you as like a culmination of everything that you've been seeing up until that point. And it doesn't feel exhausting in the same sort of way. It feels like an exclamation point on the end of a movie. It's not the first violence in the movie. The first violence in the movie is a man beating a car to death with his bare hands <laughs> in a way that's, that's fresh and almost comedic mm -hmm. uh, and yet frightening because it's an expression of anger. But that movie almost seems like a showcase for me in like how to use very explicit violence and very extreme violence in a way that doesn't just feel exhausting. I mean, to me, it, it just comes down to whether it's purposeful or not. <laughs> I mean, like, Irreversible is not deadening to me because it's, it's, I mean, it's horrific and hard to take, but it's it's certainly purposeful. You know, something like Taken, or, or, you know, Six Underground, <laughs> to give a recent example, I mean, you do kind of just, that's deadening because it just is like, it's not hitting some really startling, striking note as these really good films do. And I, I think Kyle's done a pretty good job of isolating those moments it's in Assault on Precinct 13 in, in Green Room and these types of, you know, drive. I mean, you know what the violent moments of those movies are. They really make an impression. That's what's that's the challenge as a filmmaker is to be able to present this explicit on-screen violence in a way that really hits you as hard as possible. And uh, the good films do and the bad films don't. Yeah, for me, it, you mentioned, I mean, I, I, I don't know if you can just like gauge intent so much, but the application of it, there's a moment in the early aughts or mid-aughts, really, when what became known as torture porn kind of took over horror films for a while. Mm. And, you know, some of them were good. I mean, I, I think Eli Ross Hostel is an example of one that really worked, but it became sort of just in vogue for horror films to just feature the extreme, you know, manipulation and, and harm inflicted on a human body. I remember just like... I think it was the second Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake or the the, the, the Texas Chainsaw <laughs> like, Massacre at the beginning. No, no, right. whatever it was, the uh, uh, the second Michael Bay produced one where it's just, I'm just, I may just be done with this genre for a while. Mm -hmm. I seem to, may just seem to check out. This is not going anywhere that I like. This is not horror as such as it's just sadism, you know? Um, anyway, uh, it is, a, I think it's a case by case basis. And, and like you said, it's the ones that do it well, do it well. And, and you know, when you're in the hands of someone who doesn't know what they're doing or, or just wants to uh, shock and, and and inflict pain on, on viewers and and the characters. That's a really good point. Like real life violence tends to be very unexpected and often over very quickly. And I feel like when that happens in a film, you recognize it and it's it's shocking in a way that you like recognize in a, a human kind of way. But watching somebody be tortured on screen for any like lengthy period of time to me just feels gratuitous. Yeah. Well, we're getting gratuitous in length on this episode too. So we're going to wind things down. We always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode to reach us. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net.
that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll return to the marches Concord, Massachusetts, this time by way of Greta Gerwig's Little Women. Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow, uh, which will allow you to get our weekly newsletter and unlock bonus episodes. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us on facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you always know when a new episode drops. Until then, please stay charitable, creative, and forgiving, and above all, stay well. Those who've seen us know that not a thing could come between us. Many men have tried to split us up, but no one can. Lord, help the mister who comes between me and my sister. And Lord, help the sister who comes between me and my man.